Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome everyone. It's my pleasure to host you all here today at this Sydney Ideas event. Before we continue, I would like to acknowledge that we meet this evening to exchange ideas on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, as we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university. May we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of our country, one we still have much to learn from. My name is Victoria Cogger. I'm a Professor of Translational Gerontology and Associate Dean for Research Education here in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney. Today provides me with the great opportunity to combine two of my main research interests, ageing biology and education. So I'm thrilled to be part of tonight's exciting forum that brings together world leaders in ageing research to exchange ideas with you. Tonight's event is part of the fourth annual Australian Biology of Ageing Conference that for the first time is being held jointly with the International Geroscience Symposium. So let me set the tone for tonight by a statement. And that statement is, ageing and the increased likelihood of an individual surviving and thriving into old age is a triumph. At the risk of sounding glib, and counter to the usual focus in the media of the ageing demographic, the budgetary tsunami that is the healthcare problem that is facing us, because ageing is the single biggest risk factor for disease. I would like to say that the idea that so many of us now have the opportunity of living into our 80s is a triumph of sanitation, public health education, socialised healthcare, vaccination and safer communities, all of which is based on the hard work and research of those before us. This research and knowledge has made surviving childhood, childbirth, conflict, midlife diseases such as cancer and cardiovascular disease much more likely. Indeed, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, your chances of living to 100 were about 100-fold less than they are today. And not unreasonably, in the circumstances of the times, as we grapple to deal with the ravages of war, childhood diseases and infections, ageing was not of much interest, or let's face it, that relevant. However, as we discovered ways to better prevent and treat the underlying causes of these previously common causes of death, we have alternatively invested in developing our knowledge about ageing, the common diseases of ageing and how to better care for older people. With these investigations came the discovery that ageing is a biologically programmed process that we can understand and predict, and as we increasingly know, impact upon. The paradigm was changed forever. The understanding that ageing is not simply a stochastic or additive process, um, that is basically body parts or systems gradually starting to fail and break down and be acted upon by disease, either through use or misuse or abuse, was not a eureka moment, but it was hard-won knowledge 
based on years of rational research. This relatively new understanding challenges the way we traditionally frame ageing and understand longevity, and it questions the framework within which we now treat the diseases of ageing. <coughs> Importantly, it provides a positive way that we can plan for and provide or potentially prevent the health, prevent the healthcare, provide or, pre sorry, potentially, potentially prevent the diseases of ageing and assist in the healthcare of ageing in the future. It is this switch to an ageing biology perspective of health that will have a much greater impact on the quality of life of older people than a focus on disease-specific approaches alone. Our first speaker is Dr Felipe Sierra, who is with us here tonight from the National Institute on Ageing in Baltimore, USA, where he's been the Director of the Division of Ageing Biology since 2006. Felipe trained as a biochemist in his native Chile, before obtaining a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from the University of Florida in 1983. After a number of highly successful years uncovering the biology of ageing across the world, Felipe founded and now coordinates the Trans-NIH Geroscience Interest Group. This spans the entire US National Institutes of Health. It has been built on the fact that ageing is the major risk factor for most chronic age-related diseases, and it aims to ensure that an understanding of the basic biology of ageing is central to our ability to address disease. Our second speaker is Professor Brian Kennedy, who is the Distinguished Professor of Biochemistry and Physiology at the National University of Singapore. His research is directed at understanding the biology of ageing and translating research discoveries into new ways of delaying, detecting, preventing and treating human ageing and associated diseases. Brian is the former President and CEO of the Buck Institute for Ageing in California, and prior to that, he was faculty at the University of Washington. He obtained his PhD from MIT, and it was during his graduate studies when he was working with Lenny Garenti that he developed his interest in the biology of ageing, where he identified sirtuins as a key modulator of longevity. And our final speaker is Professor Luigi Fontana, who has recently joined the University of Sydney as the Leonard P. Ullman Chair in Translational Metabolic Health. He, and he leads the research and clinical program of healthy longevity at the Charles Perkins Centre, where we are right now. Luigi was most recently at the University of Washington, where he remains an adjunct professor of medicine. Luigi is dual trained, MD, PhD, and he is passionate about preventative medicine and the mechanisms mediating healthy longevity, and the mechanisms mediating healthy longevity in humans. He is primarily focused on the role of nutrition and physical exercise in retarding the ageing process and preventing age-related diseases. So without further delay, I invite Dr. Felipe Sierra to put us on the stage. So I will tell you a little bit about the idea of geroscience and how does it play with the complex interplay between ageing and disease. Let me start from the beginning that the goal of studying biology of ageing is not to increase longevity, is to increase health span the portion of our lives when we are in good health. So we use longevity as a surrogate because it's easier to measure, it's binary, you're either alive or you're dead. There's no other choice. So that's easier to measure and that's why we do it. But the goal really is to increase health. So having said that, let me show you this. So this is the uh, average life, no. Then the Armenian lifespan of different countries at different times, how it's increasing 
as a function of time. It's an increase that's linear. There's no sign that it's gonna uh, stop. This is the success of the 20th century. This increase in longevity. In fact, during this, we're gonna be here for about an hour and a half. And during that hour and a half, there will be a 30 minute increase in median lifespan. <laughs> during the time that we're here. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. Okay? So, the problem, so this is a great success, right? The problem is that health has not increased at the same rate. So, this is a little different from what I expected. Okay, but let's focus on the green thing here. So, this is the last life expectancy increase during a period of eight years. Okay, this is a study by Ali uh, Krimitz. So, this is increasing life expectancy. Fantastic, great, good news. The problem is that at the same time, during those same eight years, this is the increase in diseases. So, not so great, right? <laughs> we're expanding lifespan, but we're not. We are also expecting and expanding the rate of diseases, and that's not, not really what we want. So why is that? And in my opinion, this is because we have been making a mistake in the way we approach this. So this is a hypothetical individual that gets born with a certain ability to respond to different challenges to function as a human being. Because of their genes and, and environment, they're gonna be functioning perfectly well until the point in which aging starts making a decline. And that decline will be different for each one of us on different of our activities, which is why we all suffer different diseases and we die of different causes. But what happens is that you're gonna die when one of these systems becomes incompatible with functioning. So in the case of this example, death will occur in this person because the cardiovascular system reached its end and that person dies, okay? How does the biomedical community react to this? Cardiovascular disease is killing people. Fight, fight. We have to declare war on cardiovascular disease. Well, maybe. But this person died of cardiovascular disease with significant other problems. Sarcopenia, a little bit of dementia. Okay, so let's say that we succeed in our fight against cardiovascular disease at the extent we have. We have statins and we have things like that. <clears throat> so this person will not die of cardiovascular disease. We postpone that. But the person did not die of that disease. He will die or something else, but now with a plethora of different diseases. And this is what we're observing, is that with age, we get multiple diseases. And by attacking one at a time, especially by attacking the ones that kill us, it's like playing what You hit one, and another one appears. You hit another one, and another one appears. This is not sustainable. It doesn't work that way, okay? And we cannot attack them all, so that's, that's where the problem is. So we have to rethink how we're addressing this thing in general. So aging is by itself the biggest risk factor for the increasing chronic diseases and disabilities. That is clear. 
the corollary of that statement is that by addressing aging, we can provide the biggest impact by addressing multiple age-related uh, diseases simultaneously. And not just diseases, but other things that affect aging, like chronic pain and things like that, which are not really diseases. But the first statement has to be clear. The biggest risk factor for uh, these diseases and disabilities is aging. Is that true? Well, so this is how biomedicine works. The, you go to the doctor because you have something, right? And you have symptoms of one disease or another, right? Those symptoms are driven by a combination of disease-specific biology, okay? You can have amyloid beta in your brain and you're going to be demented, or you can have problems handling your glucose and you can have diabetes. But the main risk factor in both cases is aging. It's the same aging for all of the diseases, right? So by addressing these uh, disease-specific things, we're only going to make progress in that disease, not on the others. However, by addressing the biology, we're going to measure what is your risk when you're still asymptomatic? What is your risk of developing any of these diseases? Because the major risk is given by the aging biology. So, the challenge. The challenge is that we study the diseases separately. You don't find people who study cancer and cardiovascular disease and diabetes. No. You go to the cardiologist, to the diabetologist, or whatever it's called, <laughs> etc. Right? They're specialists. They don't realize that you have, if you have two diseases, that's going to give you two drugs, or four drugs, or ten drugs, which interact with each other. I mean, it's a disaster. Right? The problem is that we are uh, addressing the diseases separately, and here, the major recycle is aging. And we're not addressing that. So, is it true that aging is a major risk factor? So, we all know about the major risk factors for cardiovascular disease. We've all heard about cholesterol, obesity, and the usual suspects. So, don't smoke, exercise, the diet, right, Bridget? <laughs> right? Those are the major risk factors. So, uh, let's do a theoretical experiment here. This is me and my daughter. A few years ago, so I was <laughs> okay, let's imagine that I'm a very bad father, which I assure you I'm not, but let's imagine and that I take her to eat junk food three times a day for five years. What would happen is that her risk for cardiovascular disease will increase three to five fold. Terrible. That's why you don't do that to your kids. Okay? Her risk for cardiovascular disease will increase. What happens to me, however, is a little bit different. <laughs> it's the same cholesterol. It's the same cholesterol. It's the same bad diet. The same bad habit. Why do I have to die? Okay? It's because I'm old. That's simple. So, is it because I'm already accumulating a lot of damage? That's part of it. But it's not all of it. So, uh, let me simplify that with another example. This is accumulation of amyloid in the brain of people who have Alzheimer's. And we have seen this 
increase with age. The important thing, however, is that in this case, this is at 70 years old, people don't have amyloid, right? So they don't show you the rest of the curve. So it's not just accumulation across the lifespan, because that would be a linear curve like this, right? If it was just accumulation due to age. No, it's, it's not age, it's aging. What's important? Why do we have this particular curve? Because you can produce this amyloid all through your life, but when you're young, you're resilient, you fight it, you get rid of it, and you're not accumulating the damage. What happens with age is that it comes a time, as I showed you before, where your ability to deal with these challenges starts decreasing. Your resilience starts going down. When that happens, your resilience starts going down, then the bad things start to accumulate. And that's when eventually there is a threshold, and then you get the disease. So it's not just the, the, the chronological age, it's a physiological age, your ability to deal with those bad things that are going to happen throughout your whole life. So the main result factor is aging. And what's very important to realize is that aging is much more malleable than we thought. So your chronological age is fixed. Nothing you can do about it. Your physiological age, you can work on it. And we have known that forever. The proof is that that's why we eat well, we try to eat well, and we try to exercise. Because those are, those are the things that we know help you get a healthy aging. Okay? So the, that's something we have known for a long time. So one of the big paradigms that we use in aging research is dietary restriction. Okay, so you eat less, you live longer. Well established in all species that has been uh, tried. As we try these spiders, you give two flies to this one and one fly to this one. Well, this one's gonna live longer. Okay. <laughs> has been uh, tried many, many species. Using this paradigm, we have been able to dissect a little bit the molecular drivers of the process of aging. So we have identified actually hundreds and hundreds of genes that when modified, the animals live longer. Okay, using this paradigm uh, as a guide. And because we have identified many genes and many molecular pathways, we have been able to identify a few molecules that we can address aging at the uh, more uh, pharmacological level. <coughs> okay, so the important thing is that health is also improved when we do these things. As I told you, we measure lifespan because it's easier, but the goal is health. Rather than trying to convince you by showing you a million slides from a similar million studies that have been done on it. I'll show you a movie <coughs> of how this drugs one of these actually, rapamycin, how it affects the health of mice. So these are 38-month-old mice. These are extremely old mice. There's the equivalent of centenarians in humans. Very old mice. So the ones at the bottom are the controls. 
They are acting like the inspectors and they're not doing much. One of them has a tumor, I don't remember which one. Their fur doesn't look very healthy. They're not looking very good. The guys on top have been on rapamycin for six months. And you have seen how they're exploring their cage, they're looking around, they're acting as if they were very young. They're still centenarian, they're still 38 months old. So with this simple treatment, with the drug, we can make them be in much better health. That's the bottom line. So, therefore, that's, that provides us an opportunity. I told you what the challenge is, is that we separate between diseases, one disease at a time, and get the major risk factors aging. So what's the opportunity? We can combine the two things. What can we learn about the biology of disease, of individual diseases, and what we have learned about the biology of aging to see if we can understand at the molecular and cellular level how can the biology of aging drives the biology of disease. And that is the concept that we came up, which is called geroscience. So geroscience is exactly what I just said, trying to understand at the molecular and cellular level how aging is a major risk for disease. We know that it's true, but we really need to understand how it happens in order to be able to intervene on it. So the hypothesis of geroscience it's very simple. If we accept that aging is at the core of all of these diseases and many others, all the chronic diseases that affect the other, if we accept that aging is at the core of those diseases, then if we can reduce the rate of aging, we're going to automatically reduce the rate not of one, but of all those diseases. That's the idea. Okay? And as I mentioned, we put a little bit too much emphasis on diseases. Uh, I work at the National Institute of Health, but in fact, I work at the National Institute of Diseases. The focus is on disease, not on health. So, but it turns out that health is more than absence of disease. So there's a lot of other things like this, uh, sleep disorders, chronic pain, which are not really the diseases where we spend a lot of money on, but they affect the quality of life. I always uh, say, personally, as a hobby, I like to paint and I like to play the guitar. If I get arthritis in my fingers, I'm going to be very unhappy. To me, that's perhaps more important than if I get a heart attack. Right? Because what's the point of living if I cannot paint? Okay, so the quality of life is what we sh really should be focusing on, not so much the diseases. So what I've been trying to tell you is that actually in terms of the diseases, in terms of the health, we can do something about it, we can work on it, and I think Brian and I really will give you examples of what I'm trying to say, that actually we can address those health issues. However, I just want to make clear that in spite of the fact that I'm a molecular biologist and a biochemist, health is not everything. I think it's important to consider what we're doing at the more sociological level. So basically this is a simplified way of how our life uh, happens. We're born, 
you train where the child's trained whatever until whatever age, depends on how much you want to study. Then you produce, or you don't produce, you produce, and then at 65 you retire, then you become frail, and then you die. Doesn't sound very exciting, but that's the way it is. Okay? So what we're trying to do is we are trying to reduce this period of frailty. Try to remove that, and as a side effect, we're going to increase the lifespan. Why is that? Because if you don't get sick, then you're not going to die, right? So we're going to postpone uh, things. So the problem is, however, is that, well, it's not that simple. Not everybody dies at 80, which is the average lifespan. Most of the developed world, so I assume it's around there in Australia as well. Not everybody dies at 80, of course. It's a Gaussian distribution. Right? Some people will die early, some people will die late, some people will develop diseases early, some of them will get diseases late. So the ones that get diseases early, uh, they become frail. Okay, we're going to have to take care of them. That's going to be always true, that there will be people who will require the help of geriatricians and the help to live productive lives. If we succeed with the approach that I'm proposing, the geoscience approach, where we're going to be postponing all diseases, well, we're going to be creating a situation. Whoa. We're going to be creating a situation in which we're going to produce more resilient people. We're going to get people who are 80, 90 in perfectly good health. This uh, character in there, Mr. Singh, is running a marathon at 103 years old. <laughs> Not many of us would do that, <laughs> right? But we have to be able to accommodate these people. We cannot let them, okay, you retire at 65 and you sit in front of the TV for 40 years? <laughs> doesn't sound good and it's not sustainable, right? So we have to find changes in society that will accommodate these new people, age people. So women might need to retrain them to do something else and start producing and consuming again. We're going to reduce their frailty, but we're going to have to find out what to do with this so-called age. We have to worry about ageism. We cannot allow people to think that old people are useless, low-aged, they're a burden of society. It's not true if they are healthy. The important thing is that they need to be healthy in order to avoid being a, a burden of society. So those are, I think, the main challenges that we're going to be having uh, after we succeed with the health part is to find out what we're going to do with them in society. And I think that's my last slide. Uh, yeah. So, salary. The only things that we need to remember for everything that I said is that aging is by far the major risk factor for all chronic diseases and it is malleable. That's something that has to be very clear. It's malleable. We can change the rate of aging. And that the geroscience hypothesis says that by addressing basic biology, as opposed to affect, uh, addressing specific diseases, we're going to have a better return 
both in terms of health and in terms of uh, economics and a lot of things like that. It's going to be a better approach to the diseases of aging if we address aging itself and not the specific diseases. And I, this is, I think, everything. For throughout human evolution, young people have predominated. And now, in the last decade, we have more people over 65 than under the age of five. And that number is going to be about two to three times as many in the near future. This is the climate change of healthcare. <laughs> this is what we need to focus on, is how do we deal with keeping people healthy as they get older? And we're still stuck in this sick care cycle that we have to get out of. Uh, and I think what Felipe tried to say, and what I'm going to reinforce, is that we can really do healthcare if we try. So you saw something like this slide already from Felipe, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. I do want to give one more example, though, to try to really force this point home. And that's data, I actually stole this slide from Felipe, so thank you. Uh, this is data from uh, the premium heart study. And so this is a very successful study in the US to predict cardiovascular events, heart attacks, strokes. And it's really simple. You measure these parameters up here and you find out where you are, uh, go down and you cross over and just add up the points. And the total points is your risk of a cardiovascular event in a five-year window. So let's take two theoretical people, okay? First of all, let's take the least healthy young person that you might imagine. And this may be this Philippe's daughter after 10 years of McDonald's. <laughs> um, so you have someone who's maybe 32 years old. Um, they have low HDL, high cholesterol, high untreated blood pressure. They smoke and they're already diabetic. What happens when this person goes into the doctor's office? The doctor goes crazy. He says, what are you doing? We have to take care of this. This is crazy. We have to get you on some statins for your high cholesterol. We need some beta blockers for your blood pressure. We need to get you on metformin for your diabetes. We need to call in a team of psychologists to deal with your smoking problem. Because if we don't do this, you're going to have a cardiovascular event in the next five years. Can you imagine that? You need to act. Okay. So now let's look at this person. This is the healthiest person you can imagine. Frankly, I'm not sure this person exists, but just stare with them. So here's someone that's 77, moderate HDL, low cholesterol, low untreated blood pressure, they're not, they don't smoke, not diabetic. What happens when this person walks into the doctor's office? The doctor says, you are doing great. Don't change anything, everything's perfect, just keep going like you are. Now what they should say is we called in a team of specialists and we analyzed your data, we did artificial intelligence and data analytics, and we've concluded that you're old. <laughs> and if you don't do something about that, you're very likely to have a cardiovascular in the next five years. Now, because this person's risk, just by this virtue of this one number, is equivalent to the other person's. Forget all these numbers. This is the biggest risk factor, not just for cardiovascular disease, but everything else you're likely to get when you get old as well, or every other chronic disease you're likely to get as well. And the reason the doctor doesn't say that is they don't believe you can do anything about aging. But the data from animals, and already it's starting to accumulate in humans, says that's just plain wrong. So we need to change this thinking. And it's not just disease, and Felipe already sort of alluded to this, but I'll uh, touch on it again. It's also function declines with aging. So this is the women's marathoners now. This is the world record time for women's marathon by age. 
And you can see that, yeah, it goes up at the end, but it's, sorry, it cut off my data here. This is 20 to 30, 30 to 40, something like that, trust me. Uh, it goes up steadily as you get older, and this is already by 40, you're significantly slower than the people were at 20. Now this is about, this is a person over 90, and frankly anyone that can run a marathon over 90, I'm not gonna criticize. But my point is that this number is going up steadily, not just at the end. Functional decline is happening. Here's another statistic. This is the uh, average ranking of the top 10 US chess players by category. So if you just look overall, these are the top 10 rate players, they're 2,782. This is a phenomenally high number. I'll come back to that in a second. My point though is, let's look at 65 plus year olds. These are people that have been playing chess for 50 years or even 60 years, and their average ranking is somewhere between a 13 year old and a 14 year old. They have way more experience than these kids, but they're not, they're not as good as 14 year olds. Again, that's cognitive decline with aging, it's concentration, it's focus, it's creativity. Now, I wondered why this number was so high, by the way, because the US is not particularly known for having great chess players. And it turns out that all of these players that are in the top 10 are recent immigrants to the US. <laughs> so, before Donald Trump, the chosen one, decides to stop immigration in the US, we should consider what it's going to do to chess team. <laughs> all right, so, the aging field, we've been doing a lot of research and we've centered on a few things that are driving aging and they're listed in these circles here. Chronic inflammation, your ability to adapt to stress, how your proteins are made and kept functional, how your adult stem cells in your body respond to damage and replenish your tissues that declines with age, changes in metabolism, damage to molecules, and changes to your epigenome, how your DNA is packed in your nucleus. But I don't think it's these individual things that matter so much, it's how they're all connected to each other. Because you can start with any one of these things going wrong and it triggers something else. So you have altered metabolism, that drives inflammation, which changes, which creates damage. And that damage affects your ability to adapt to stress. You can get from any one of these points to any other. And so the way I think about aging is not like there's one thing going wrong. Really what's happening is that if you're doing healthy aging, you have this network that keeps you healthy. Damage is still happening. If we measure chest or running speed or something like that, we can see a decline. But you're still highly functional and disease-free. You're in equilibrium. The problem is when this network breaks down, when enough of these things go wrong and they start triggering each other, when the network breaks, that's when you get the chronic diseases. And so maintaining healthy aging is not about fixing one thing. It's about maintaining this functional network, this adaptive response in your body to deal with damages that's occurring. And so that's how we really think about aging. I don't think you can talk about your favorite thing that causes aging, DNA damage, protein misfolding, oxidative damage, telomere shortening, all of these things may have a role, but I don't think there's one specific cause in every individual. It's gonna be different because of your genetics, your environment, but it's really about maintaining this network. That's what matters. And interestingly, there are lots of ways to slow aging. Uh, there are behavioral ways to slow aging. Uh, calorie restriction you heard about, very difficult. You know, for me that's going down to 14, 1500 calories a day and I can't do that. Uh, Luigi will talk a lot more about diet and aging. Uh, there's also intermittent fasting approaches that he'll talk about. 
exercise, it works. You may not like it, but at least for median life expectancy, it works. Uh, and then alcohol is an interesting one. So the data is very controversial on alcohol. We know that high uh, intake of alcohol is bad for you. But something like two glasses a day, there are a number of studies that suggest it actually reduces mortality. I have about 120 mice in, in my lab in California that are on 10% alcohol in their drinking water. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just tell you, they're doing quite well. <laughs> I won't talk about them anymore today. <laughs> there are a number of drugs, however, that are reported to affect aging in animal models. And one of the challenges now is to take these different molecules and start to test them and see whether we're really slowing human aging. That's one of the things that I'm trying to focus on in Singapore. Rather than show you those old things, I'm going to show you a new compound. And the reason is this is a natural product, and I have to do a disclosure here because I'm a member of the board of this company and I did some of the research. But the goal is to identify natural products that affect aging. And the reason is that if we have a drug, it's very hard to get approved for aging because the FDA doesn't consider aging a disease. But if we have natural products, those are already, generally, they're more safe, although they need to be tested. And they're easier to market. And so we're trying to find combinations of natural products that might affect aging. I'll just show you one of them. This is alpha-ketoglutarate. Uh, it's a small molecule you have in your body. You can ask me later if you want to know what it does. The interesting thing is that when we give it to mice at 18 months of age, it really has just a small effect on survival. It extends lifespan by about 5 to 10%. That's not what makes it so interesting. What makes it interesting to me is what it does with frailty. And so each of these dots is an individual frailty score. The females just focus here. Uh, and that was stored during the percent of their lifespan. So this is between 50 and 60% of the lifespan of the animal, 60 and 70, etc. In the control animals, it just goes steadily up. These animals are getting frail as they get older. But you can see in the AKG-treated animals, they stay healthy for a very long time and only start to get frail at the end. And so this is the kind of molecule I'm really excited about. We think it's compressing morbidity. It's extending health span dramatically, even though it has a small effect on lifespan. The time that these animals are sick is compressed. And those are the kinds of molecules we're really trying to focus on. And by the way, I have a picture of mice, too, to show you. Uh, this is 27-month-old mice. Here's the control mice. They're losing their hair. They have gray hair. It's a little hard to see. They're, they have kyphosis, which is a curvature of the spine, and a whole range of other properties of aging. And many of these things are, are suppressed in the alpha-ketoglutarate-treated mice. And this is not the only intervention. We could show 10 or 15 different small molecule interventions that have this effect. The point is that there are multiple ways to slow aging. And we need to figure out which ones work in humans. Maybe rapamycin will work and AKG won't, or maybe the other way around. But we have to test this and start to understand what's going on. So just a little bit about Singapore uh, to finish up. So the reason I'm in Singapore is it's, it's really a, a perfect storm for aging. We have an extremely long life expectancy, uh, rapidly aging population. Uh, very low birth rate, 1.1 of the Chinese population in Singapore, which is 70% of the population, and really no room for immigration. So have to do something. Uh, if they, nothing happens right now, by 2030, there's going to be only two working people for every retired person. That's a recipe for economic disaster, and it's a big effect on quality of life, too. So many people are over 65. In fact, they already just increased the retirement age this week. It's up to 70. 
that's only going to work if we can keep people healthy and functional. And so we're really focused on health span. And so what we're trying to do is combine preclinical research, animal models, for instance, translational research, and clinical research to test these interventions in humans to see if they can affect aging. And then we want to develop an implementation strategy to bring this into the whole Singapore population. This, whatever we develop, we have to be able to scale in an economical way. We can't spend $100,000 on every person for keeping them healthy longer. We need efficient, scalable mechanisms. Um, and so what we're trying to do is test a whole range of interventions against what we call biomarkers of aging. We want to measure your biologic age. Your passport is a really good measure of your chronologic age. But that's not telling you how well you're aging. We need to understand how well each individual ages, and also how they age differently, because none of us are completely the same. And so there's a whole range of different suggested biomarkers for aging that have emerged. The old ones are all physiological, so walking speed. That's really good at people over 70 at predicting mortality, not so good at people under 70. Uh, there's cognitive tests and grip strength and VO2 max, etc. But more recently, there have been a whole range of molecular biomarkers that have been developed as well. We can take your blood cells and measure the state of methylation of your DNA and predict your age within about three or four years. Um, inflammatory factors, telomere link, we could go on and on. There's also digital biomarkers that have emerged, monitoring how active you are, how you move, how much you move. And also, and I want to talk a little bit about this, is facial pattern recognition. So, sorry, so this is uh, a, a whole range of different measures. What we don't know right now is how they interact with each other. Do I have to do all of these things to understand the composite of a person's biologic aging? Can I just do one of them and get all the information? I doubt either of those are true, but we have to measure them in the same individuals to understand how they interact with each other. And so that's what we're trying to do. And I'll just close by talking about um, uh, work from Jackie Han, who's a visiting professor in Singapore and a professor, and she just moved to Beijing. I need to change that slide. And she looked at 10,000 people in the Chinese Han population, ranging from 30 to 70, uh, and used this camera to measure 35 different components of their facial structure and recreate a three-dimensional image, and then, and then tried to predict their age from that. And so she did something called DCNN. To me, that sounded like an oxymoron. <laughs> but actually, it stands for Deconvolution uh, Cognitive Neural Networking. It's an artificial intelligence approach to try to predict age. And you can see that this is a person's predicted age using the, our AI, and this is their actual age and how well it corresponds. We can predict age down to about 2.5 years now. And what's interesting about this is that you can look at it the kinds of drugs people are taking and a number, of, a number of their other parameters. And the people that are taking metformin, which is one of the compounds that slows aging, we think, actually look younger in their facial structure than the people that are not, suggesting that the interventions that we want to test are actually influencing the biomarkers. So we're really excited about this and the strategy now, and I don't think anybody has exactly the right answer. But the goal right now is to figure out how to test these interventions in humans in an effective way, and, a co and I mean cost-effective too. We can't spend $100 million for every trial we do. We have to be able to test multiple different things and show that they keep people healthy and prevent disease. So that's really the challenge in aging and what I'm trying to focus on moving forward. Uh, and so we're doing clinical studies in individuals 45 to 65 that are still healthy. Um, but at risk of chronic disease, that's our 
primary population. We think this is the, the best point to intervene. We don't want to intervene to 20 year olds and give them drugs for 50 years. We want to take people on the verge of getting chronic disease and see if we can delay that process. But we're also looking at specific areas where aging might be particularly important. Can we predict surgical outcomes in elders? It's always a challenge. Do you do the knee replacement surgery or not? Uh, will the person recover? And uh, we want to know whether we can use these biomarkers to predict that. We want to understand how aging is affecting female reproductive health and fertility. Women in their 30s, Singapore, this is a big issue. They, a lot of them want to work longer before they have a baby. The Singapore government wants them to have a baby at work. Uh, as we face the population issues. And so can we predict someone who's 35, whether they're biologically 31 and they can wait a little bit, or whether they need to have a baby now because biologically they're older. Uh, and then also there's a million different exercise programs in Singapore and around the world, and very few metrics on which ones work. So we're trying to use these biomarkers to see if uh, which uh, exercise programs are actually affecting aging. So those are just some areas we're working in, and I'm happy to uh, stop here and I'll uh, discuss further, but you should hear more about diet and aging. So I'll stop and let the meeting start. So following, you know, the the topic, you know, that Brian and Philippe have discussed. You know, just very quickly, you know, I want to point out, you know, again, you know, we are living in, in, in a system where basically it's a sick care system, it's not healthcare system. So the, the, the most ability is. US is spending $3.3 trillion in healthcare, and 90% is to treat chronic disease after they have had Okay? This is unsustainable. In Australia, there is a prediction of a doubling of healthcare costs in the next 20 years in terms of GDP. So it's not sustainable in any advanced society, you know, this type of system. So we have to do something, and as Brian and Philippe said, you know, what the revolutionary discovery of this biology of aging is that the great majority of chronic disease you, you see in, this, in the hospitals have a common metabolic molecular substrate. So cancer, fatty liver disease, dementia, stroke, cardiovascular disease, they are not, you know, completely different disease. They have the same metabolic molecular substrate. So if you act before upstream, you are able to prevent all of them. But then if you have cancer, you have to treat cancer with drugs, if you have cardiovascular disease. So it's a different approach, very, very important, very revolutionary. And another important point is, you know, that as we age, you know, we accumulate damage, metabolic molecular damage, but in reality, your the risk of developing chronic disease starts before conception. So what we have discovered, you know, what we do in terms of lifestyles is influencing our epigenome, so how our, how, you know, our genes are read, and this is influencing the risk of our kids and our grandkids and grand-grandkids to, de to, to develop obesity, cancer, cardiovascular disease, dementia. So what we do as teenagers before conception is influencing for three generations the risk of our kids to develop disease through epigenetics. So again, you know, the idea is to target aging and not single diseases. And you know, as Philippe and, and, and Brian they said, you know, we have discovered you know, there are some pathways, some several pathways that are evolutionarily conserved through many, you know, from these to wolves of life mammals. 
And what we know is that, you know, if you, for example, you downregulate these nutrient-sensing pathways that are pathways that are able to sense how much proteins and calories and other nutrients are available for growth and reproduction, these animals are living longer and healthier, okay? And this is, thank you to molecular biology, now we have discovered these, these important pathways. And just to make an example, one of these nutrient-sensing pathways is the insulin IGF-1 pathway. So if you have less insulin and less IGF-1, and I'll tell you how you, put up, how you can lower this one in a second, you have less binding of these two molecules in, on, on the receptor of your cells, and you are triggering a pathway that is leading to an activation of a factor called FOXO, that when it binds to the receptor, it increases autophagy, so the capacity of your cells to remove garbage, so it's like if you clean up the garbage within your cells, it increases DNA repair genes, so basically the capacity of your cells to repair DNA damage. Every time cells are, are dividing, you have random mutation, and so there are systems that are repairing the damage. It increases basically antioxidant pathways, the capacity to remove and protect against oxidative stress, and it is reducing cell proliferation. Less cell proliferation, less random mutations, less cancer, less cell senescence. Okay? So how can we lower, for example, insulin uh, exercise? Exercise, for example, is one of the most powerful interventions in humans. These are human data, not mice or other animals. These are humans. So people with type 2 diabetes, elderly people, one week of uh, endurance exercise, this is John Holland's data, basically you see a, a beautiful improvement in insulin sensitivity. Okay, lower insulin level because you are becoming more insulin sensitive. What we have discovered, you know, if you have accumulation of visceral fat, bad effects, this is producing hormones called adipokines that are causing insulin resistance, and so the pancreas has to secrete more insulin to compensate for the insulin resistance. So by, by exercising, you improve insulin sensitivity through several pathways. I don't have the time to go into the details, but again, you know, through science, we have discovered the pathways. This is another study you know, we did in the US. Here's a randomized clinical trial comparing calorie restriction exercise and rabies exercise. As you can see here, exercise is more powerful than calorie restriction in lowering insulin levels. There is no doubt about it. Exercise does many other things. It's not only improving insulin sensitivity. It, it does increase the good cholesterol, the HDL cholesterol, reduce glucose, triglyceride, blood pressure, and therefore the risk of heart disease. You know, again, exercise is reducing insulin inflammation, uh, sex hormones, bioavailability, and so it's reducing the risk of cancer. And for example, when you exercise, I don't know if you know it, you know, there is a molecule called catepsin B produced by the muscle that goes to the brain and triggers the production of a factor called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, that is essential to improve brain function to improve memory, that's why it's important to exercise for memory, and it also has a powerful antidepressant effect, okay? And you can trigger BDNF production through exercise or through fasting, okay? And, but the idea that, you know, you exercise and then you eat whatever you want is wrong. You know, the quality of diet, what we eat, is as important as exercise. So it's a mix of factors that are combining and producing healthy longevity. And uh, 
just to give an example that you know it's not only working healthy individual but these are for example people with type 2 diabetes we study people with type 2 diabetes obesity abnormal obesity we randomized 25 percent calorie restriction for six months and in these people you know we had an improvement in of course in waist circumference reduction in glucose reduction in hemoglobin an improvement in insulin sensitivity reduction in systolic blood pressure diastolic blood pressure angiotensin 2 and we had a reduction in inflammation, reduction in albuminuria, and a major improvement in kidney function. So the, 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 the damage to the kidney was improved just by six months of reducing calories in these people with type 2 diabetes. In another study, you know, in, in a healthy young individual, 20 to 50 years old, BMI 22 to 28, so basically they were slightly overweight, not obese individuals, with a mild calorie restriction, we just reduced by 13% the calorie. So it's not a major, it's 13% less, and yet we had an improvement in all the cardiometabolic risk factors. So we had a reduction in cholesterol, an increase in the good cholesterol, reduction in triglyceride, reduction in, in, in blood pressure, reduction in insulin. And this is important because in the Framingham study, we found that you know, people that have optimal cardiometabolic risk factor, like these people, you know, they now have, they have a risk of having a myocardial infarction of five percent. People that at 50 years old they have two or more abnormal risk factor, or they are treated for high blood pressure or high glucose or high cholesterol, they have a risk of 70 percent. So we go from five percent to 70 percent. And the median survival is 11 years shorter. 11 years shorter, okay? <clears throat> and in these people, you know, we found that not, not only this cardiometabolic factor, but inflammation was drastically reduced. Oxidative stress this is a marker to measure oxidation, so there was less oxidation in, 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 in these people. So it's a very broad, you know, effect on many important metabolic and molecular factors that are driving multiple diseases, not only cardiovascular diseases, driving cancer, driving sarcopenia, because inflammation, for example, is involved in all the chronic diseases of aging. <clears throat> and then, you know, we also found, you know, that molecular level, we have an improvement in proteostasis, so a better capacity to keep our proteins at higher quality, increase in autophagy, increase in uh, reduction in inflammation. So, you know, we are really finding, you know, how these processes are working at the molecular level. Uh, so, but, you know, before I said, you know, calorie restriction is difficult to do, maybe, because, maybe not, you know, because there are tricks, you know, to do calorie restriction without really counting calories. One is substituting refined processed food, junk food, with a plant-based high-fiber diet. So like a Mediterranean diet, you know, we got, I just finished a study in the U.S., you know, where we fed people for, for two months, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, a kind of high-fiber vegetable, lots of whole grains, beans, vegetables, and nuts and seeds. And I had to overfeed people 250 calories to keep their body weight stable. Otherwise, they were losing weight without counting, without doing calorie restriction, just by substituting, you know, refined with, with, with real food. So that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's one, one trick. The other trick is to stop eating before you are completely full. A lot of people, they keep eating, eating, eating stuff. You know, when you are almost there, say, you know, ah, maybe I'm gonna eat another spoon, I'll stop it. You know, that's, you know, a kind of 10, 15%, 20% calorie restriction by itself. And if, if you educate yourself, that's a way to count your calories. Another way would be to eat most of your 
calories in a, in a, in a time frame, like, you know, the time you're feeling, you know, like, you know, 10, 12 hours, or maybe having a very light dinner, like vegetables was in the evening. Another one is, you know, especially if you have, you know, if you are overweight, you know, is to incorporate one slash two days of vegetable fasting per week. So in a randomized clinical trial we finished in the US a um, few months ago, we basically randomized people to two or three days of fasting, depending if they were obese or overweight. It was not consecutive days. They were allowed to eat as many vegetables, non-starchy vegetables, cooked or raw, as, as many as they wanted without counting calories, with two tablespoons of olive oil. And uh, this is like a 20% calorie restriction on a weekly basis. And the results are quite encouraging. You know, we got a 7% weight loss in, in, in six months. And some people, they lost 30 kilos in, in six months just by doing this you know, vegetable fasting twice a week. Okay, so these are different strategies, and you know, everybody can choose and incorporate with exercise and other factors, you know, to, you know, uh, control. But as I said, you know, calories, you know, we are living in an obesity-centric society, you know, we, uh, people are obsessed with weight, but weight is not the only factor for health, you know, reducing body weight, body fat is not the only factor. What we are discovering, for example, here at Charles Perkins Center, the director is Steve Simpson, and he has interesting data that has been supported by other studies, you know, that if you lower your protein intake, I mean, proteins are extremely important for health, but what we are finding you know, in Western society, we are eating too many proteins, okay? So, you know, lowering protein intake to a more physiological level in animals is extending lifespan, and for example, with Adelaming, we found that just by lowering branched amino acids, <coughs> people now they go to the gym and they take whey proteins, you know, to build muscle. These branched amino acids are in, in animal models they are promoting insulin resistance, increasing insulin, in, in, so basically increasing in insulin and glucose, and, and it's also promoting cancer in some animal models, you know, and we found you know reducing protein to a more physiological level. They have, they have less cancer, and is also increasing the capacity of some new therapy to kill cancer cells. And this is an important slide. It's not mine, it's, from, it's a study from Bettina Mittendorfer, is a colleague, but I think it's very important, you know, because now there are these low-carb diet, a lot of people are talking about, you know, the ketogenic, the, the Atkin diet, you know. And so what Bettina did here, she took of these women, and she randomized them, to 10% weight loss. Half they had to lose 10% weight loss on a high protein diet, 1.3 grams per kilogram body weight. The other half on a normal protein diet, 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight. They had the same reduction in body weight, same reduction in visual fat, the abdominal fat, same reduction in liver fat, but the women that lost 10% body weight on the high protein diet, they had zero improvement in insulin sensitivity. The women that had this, the, the 10% weight loss on the high, on the normal protein diet, they had a beautiful improvement in insulin sensitivity. So these studies combined with other studies suggest that the calorie is not a calorie. So you can lose body weight, visual fat, liver fat, and yet metabolically you are still insulin resistant and you have excess insulin binding to the insulin adjuvant pathway, inhibiting autophagy, inhibiting DNA repair, inhibiting antioxidant pathways and promoting cell proliferation. So I think, you know, it's not just a matter of losing weight, how we lose weight and the quality is very important metabolically. 
And that's what we are finding with all this biology of aging science. And finally, another important point about the coil of diet is that, you know, as you know, we have trillions of bacteria living in our gut. And these bacteria, they are shaped, you know, the type of bacteria that they live in our gut, they are, depends on what type of food we are feeding them. Based on what we eat, we select certain bacteria or others. And we found that in animals, in humans, protein intake and fibers are the two of the most important nutrients shaping the structure and function of these bacteria. And just to give you an example, a high fiber diet is digested by the gut microbiota to produce short-chain fatty acids that are molecules that, have, that, that can bind to receptor called g kappa receptor. And when these short-chain fatty acids are binding to this receptor, you reduce inflammation and you increase some immune cells that are protecting us from allergic disease like asthma or autoimmune disease like multiple sclerosis, type 1 diabetes, IBD, so inflammatory bowel disease. So what we are finding is that the increase in autoimmune and allergic disease is partly due to the drastic reduction in fiber that you know we have in our diet. You know, people now they're eating refined carbohydrates that are very poor in fibers, and that's part of the mechanism through the gut microbiota is driving the increase in autoimmune allergic disease. And finally, we found that, you know, that you know, the response, for example, to color restriction, to weight loss, the metabolic response depends by the type of bacteria we have in our gut, suggesting you know, what we ate before, and so the type of bacteria that you know, we have selected in our gut is changing the metabolic response to the same amount of calorie restriction. So it's beautiful, but it's complicated. It's not just losing two, three, four kilos. It's not as simple. It's how you lose it and the quality of what you're doing. So just to summarize, of course, you know, we are all different. And so different interventions, you know, they are going to act differently on people. So that's what we're trying to, try, try to do, you know, to find biomarkers so, you know, we, we can be more precise in prescribing dietary interventions, dietary exercise in a more selective way. But it's not only diet, it's exercise, it's cognitive training. I don't know if you know that you, if, you don't, if you are not sleeping, if you are sleep deprived, what we found in animals and humans, your, your neurons, they keep firing during the night and you deposit beta amyloid and tau. So part of the dementia is driven by poor sleep. And as you know, people as get older, they sleep less and less and have poor quality. And that's part of the contribution of dementia. It's not the only one, but it's, it's an important one. And of course, pollution, smoking, and, and, and many other factors that are contributing to this longevity, healthy longevity uh, uh, feature. And lastly, these are the, the last two slides, what we have also to understand is that what we do and what we eat is not only influencing our own health, but I don't know if you know that, you know, 30% of global warming is due to intensive animal farming. So these animals that are producing methane and CO2 that is increasing global warming, 30%. And 25 to 30% of particular matter, PM10 and PM225, are produced from, from uh, intense animal farming. And so I'm not suggesting that you know, we have to become vegetarians, 
but uh, we have to drastically reduce our consumption of animal products, increase the quality, but re reduce the consumption, and so that has a beneficial effect on our own health, on the environmental health, and back to our health, okay? And so, you know, that's the point. You know? So we have to have a bigger perspective than just ourselves, our own health, if you want to, because, you know, as Philippe and Brian said, you know, one tsunami is going to be the aging population. It's going to be unsustainable what we are doing. It's going to be impossible to have, basically, I don't know, in Italy, for example, my country, in, in, uh, in uh, 2050, 34% of Italians is going to be older than 65. And based on data we have, 90% of these, they have one chronic disease, and 70% they have two or more chronic diseases. And we have a public health system, like in Australia, unsustainable. Unsustainable. So that's a major problem, but then it's the environment, global warming, pollution, the aquifer, you know, they are destroyed by all these intensive animal farming. So we have to redesign, and we have the knowledge to redesign a better world for us and our kids if we use knowledge that, you know, we are producing in this university and we apply to real life in the world's far away. And that's it. Before we thank the three speakers, I'd just like to quickly sum up what they've said. I think we can all probably agree that we need to shift our perspective from a sick care to a health care, to look at the commonality of the process of ageing rather than individual diseases. Brian offers some tantalising insights into some of the therapeutics and some of the interventions that are potentially coming our way. And Luigi, very, um, very, uh, carefully spoke about the impact of diet and exercise on how we can be more healthy and uh, age better. So I'd like to thank our three excellent speakers this night. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.